Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by the host of the award-winning Marie TV, Marie Forleo. Named by Oprah as a thought leader for the next generation, she's the star of Marie TV, which has over 48 million views, which is completely crazy. And she's also the host of the Marie Forleo podcast, which has more than 9 million downloads. She spent time with a who's who of thought leaders and personal development experts, including Tony Robbins, Richard Branson, and Brene Brown. She's also the author of two books, including the just-released Everything is Figureoutable, which is the main subject of today's conversation. Marie, we made this connection because Rick was on Marie TV, and it's wonderful to kind of put the shoe on the other foot here and have you on our show. How are you doing today? I am so excited to be with you both, and thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're mostly going to focus on the book. We may or may not wander off into other territory. We kind of already got to go with some stuff before we started recording, so I can only imagine. But you begin the new book, Everything is Figureoutable, with a story about your mother and her orange radio, her radio that I believe was shaped like an orange. I think it would be great to start with that story and learn a bit more about what your journey has been like between there and here. Yes. So a lot of folks ask me where this phrase actually came from. And I start by telling them that my mom is a character. She's about 5'3". She looks like June Cleaver. She curses like a truck driver. And she is one of the most resourceful, industrious people you will ever meet in your life. So a little bit of her background. She grew up in poverty in the projects of Newark, New Jersey. She didn't have much. She had two alcoholic parents. So she kind of learned by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block like five times. And she told me that when she was young, she made herself a promise that when she was old enough, she would find a way to a better life. And she did. One of my fondest memories is being at our house in New Jersey, sitting around our kitchen table and cutting out coupons. Like She loved to teach me all the different ways that our family could save money. Being frugal is one of her number one goals in life. She loves it. Mm. The other thing that she taught me was that if you really paid attention, that you could get really cool free stuff from brands if you saved up those proof of purchase little barcodes. Do you guys remember those? And one of my mom's most prized possessions was a free gift she got from Tropicana Orange Juice. This little tiny transistor AM FM radio looks like an orange, has this white and red striped antenna sticking out of it that looks like a straw. And she loved this thing. And I remember no matter when I would come home, the way that I would find my mom was listening for the tinny little sound of this radio. She'd be like (laughs) somewhere in the yard or somewhere in the house. And that was my clue to where to find her. One day I was coming home from school, walking home in New Jersey, and I heard the radio off in the distance. And as I got closer, I realized it was coming up from above, which was unusual. I looked up and on the second story of our two-story house was my mom. And I'm terrified. I'm like, mom, what are you doing up there? Like, so scared. <laughs> and you have to get, again, my mom, June Cleaver, cars is like a truck driver from New Jersey. She's like, hey, Ree, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. We had a leak in the roof. I called the roofer. He said it was going to be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I saw some extra asphalt. I'm going to fix it. And I was like, okay. One day, it was uh, one of these like crisp fall days in the Northeast of New Jersey. And it was dark. And I come home from school and there was silence, like utter silence, which is very strange for an Italian-American house. Walk in, don't see my mom, don't hear the radio. And honestly, I got scared. 
because this mm. meant something was wrong. Walking around the house, don't see her, don't hear anything. And then all of a sudden I heard some clicks and clacks and I followed that sound to the kitchen. I walk in and I see my mom hovered like over our kitchen table and on the kitchen table in about like 20 different pieces was her Tropicana orange radio, this beloved little thing she had. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mom, are you okay? What happened? Did your, did your radio break? And she put down her screwdriver, put down her tools. She turned to me and she said, I'm fine, Ray. It's not that big of a deal. She said, the uh, antenna broke and the dial was a little off and I'm just fixing it. And this was the first time I finally like had the forethought to ask my mom the question I'd always wanted to ask her. I was like, hey, mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that no one has ever showed you how to do before and you just do them? And that's when she Mm. looked at me and she said, Three, nothing in life is that difficult. You can figure anything out if you just set your mind to it, roll up your sleeves and get in there. Everything is figure outable. And in that moment, that phrase just like washed over my entire being. And just to set context, this is the 80s, right? This is like pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Google. My mom has nothing more than a high school education. So there was like no one that she could ask about really anything. And she just did it. So that philosophy and that idea, that notion that everything is figure outable was something that I witnessed and something that I held on to so tightly that helped me throughout every stage of my life from being an adolescent, from getting through high school. And you guys, we all know the things that you can kind of go through in high school, you know, from college to starting the career, to starting a business, to saving relationships, to getting out of bad ones. I mean, it is universal in its application. And it has been the one thing in my life that I've seen that is so transformative. So that's why I felt like... I always think about this because obviously in 100 years, we're all going to be powder. We don't know when we're going. We're here right now. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine said, you know, you're so busy with the rest of the business. Why are you, at, why are you writing this book? It's a lot of work. I said, I know. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, this is the one idea that I would want to leave behind. This is the one idea that I feel like if I can communicate it effectively and if I can share it with enough people, that it can really help them achieve what they want to achieve, solve big problems. And then you guys, this is like really the big thing for me. A deeper reason that I wanted to write this book is, you know, obviously you look around in our world and we have a lot of big collective problems. There is inequality, there's injustice, uh, there's challenges with our environment. I mean, you can look at any sector, you can look at any vertical, we've got big things to solve. So the deeper reason I was hoping that if I could get someone to embrace this idea and own it as their own and see how effective it is, that collectively then we can start using it to solve some of our bigger problems and create a more loving and just world. I think it's fantastic. And it makes me think about all the research on learned helplessness, which you know about, which is such a factor of depression, people feeling trapped in futility and defeat. And the opposite of that is very much your, your attitude. Everything is outable, a sense of learned optimism or uh, as you know as well, a growth mindset. But before we dive into the details of this, I was reflecting about the word figure outable and everything. And I'd like to unpack what you mean by that a little bit by raising the examples of situations in which people are dealing with a something or other that's actually not figure outable. 
let's say the orange transistor radio, what a great story, is really permanently broken. Or the love of your life is leaving you, has left you, and is not coming back. Or you have a terminal illness, or your child has a terminal illness. So what do you mean by figure outable when you face conditions that are not fixable? Yes. And have you ever faced conditions like that in your own life? And how did you deal with them? Yes. So there's a couple of different things I want to share. So first, I want to dive in with a story from a woman named Jen who wrote us from New Zealand. When I started to share this idea, I had first basically told the story of my mom and this notion on Oprah's stage. She had an incredible event and a lot of folks watched that. And so I got an email from a woman in New Zealand and she said, my goodness, I watched that Oprah talk. My mom watched it with me. We both were so on board. We believe it. Yes. And then my mom got the diagnosis that she has terminal cancer. And all of a sudden, it was everything is figure outable and no, nothing is figure outable. Mm-hmm. But she said, you know what happened then, Marie? I actually stepped back and re-looked at it and it was still true. What I could figure out was how to get my mom care. She lives in a rural area. I could figure out how to make sure that she spent the last five weeks of her life in her home, which is where she wanted to be. I figured out how to get everyone around her so that she could have this beautiful experience. So you know what? And this is what her words are. Everything really is figure outable. You have to take the big things and break them down into small steps. And she was so appreciative. So I think that story illustrates one thing that I talked about in the book was a little set of rules to help us use this idea in a way that's going to be the most healthful and productive. There's three simple rules and they're this. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figure outable. Rule number two, if a problem is not figure outable, it's not a problem, it's a fact of life, i.e., death, gravity, taxes. We can fill in the blanks there. <laughs> Rule number three, you may not care enough to figure out this particular problem, achieve this particular dream, and that's okay. Find something that you are willing to invest in and then go back to rule number one. We also talk a little bit about in the book, distinguishing between things we can control and things we can't. And I think there's some overlap there. One of the things that I've learned in my career is when I am my happiest and my best, when I am being of service and contributing the most, I have the lion's share of my focus on what I can control, not what I can't. And I always know what I control is my attitude, my perspective, the effort, the love, the compassion I'm bringing. And if I stay in that zone, the things that I can't control have this way of not necessarily shifting or transforming in real life, but I shift in relation to them. And then all these other new possibilities open up. So let's be clear. We are all going to face hard truths. We are all going to face things like death and illness and loss and grief. This notion that everything is figure outable doesn't necessarily mean that we all of a sudden get to change the laws of physics. But what it does, it empowers us to fire up our innate wisdom so that we can live in the presence of these things with a sense of grace and creativity and love and compassion. That's a wonderful response, Marie. And it causes me to reflect a little bit on something that we were actually talking about before we started recording uh, that Rick mentioned, this idea that 
by taking positive steps in your life, you can have kind of little victories of various kinds. To use the example of the woman who you were speaking to, just getting your mother to good care in that example is absolutely a small or even a medium or even a large victory. Yes. And once you achieve that first step, that gives you the resources that you need to maybe go out and try to achieve a second and a third and so on. But those little victories can kind of lay the road for the bigger dreams that you want to achieve in your life. Absolutely. In a similar area, it's one thing to kind of have this mindset if you come from sort of a rosy background or rosy circumstances and quite another if you come from challenging circumstances. And one of the things that I really appreciate in the book is that you really speak to this extensively, where you use examples from a number of people who come from backgrounds of generational violence, extreme poverty, still being able to overcome their circumstances in a variety of factors. So I was wondering if you could speak to a moment for maybe somebody listening who feels that, you know, their life isn't so easy right now. Absolutely. What are some of the things that they can do practically to move themselves either more into that mindset or kind of reap the benefits of that mindset in their life? Yes. So, you know, I'm very aware as a white woman born in the United States to borrow a phrase from Warren Buffett, I have won the ovarian lottery. So I'm very, very aware of that. But one of the things that's been really important to me in my entire career is always looking broadly at the whole world and finding people, regardless of where they grew up and the challenges that they faced, found a way to thrive. And you know, to your point, highlighting some of those folks in the book, I, I would love to read something that a woman named Tiffany shared with us, if I may. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. It's really brief because she is one of those folks that you, that you speak about. She says, you know, it's easy for those of us who come from modest backgrounds or have generational histories of social trauma and disenfranchisement to be bogged down by the weight of despair. As the daughter of my once impoverished African-American dad, I inherited the hopelessness that comes from a legacy of being beaten down, having rights removed, fighting, then having one's land, home, and family wrenched away no matter what you do. In tiny ways, that mentality would defeat my efforts. I'd start something, come up upon an obstacle, grow sad, not realizing I could figure it out. But now I know I do have the resources to make something happen. Marie, you taught me this. As someone who has struggled for years with how to know how to move forward and then do it, the one thing you said that changed my life is that everything is figure outable. So to be clear, there are so many people in this world who are approaching life with a lot of obstacles already stacked against them. And I still believe in my heart of hearts that each of us are born with such innate power and wisdom, but our educational system, not just here in the United States, but globally, doesn't teach us how to access that power, how to use that power, how to use this beautiful tool that we have called the mind to shape and reshape our reality and lift ourselves and others up. So my response is, is to start investigating with a really compassionate lens, your beliefs about what's possible for you. And then to start looking around to see if perhaps you can find examples of folks who are from a similar background, who perhaps face similar obstacles and found a way through. And to use them, not to compare yourself that you're less, but to use them to inspire yourself to say, well, if they could do it, that means there's a way for me too. And I think once you begin to pull those strings and you surround yourself with examples, educational material, a new sense of possibility, that's when we start to see growth. One of the things that's very useful in your whole approach is directing people back into their own minds. 
Because that's the origin point for everything. And you probably know this line from the Dhammapada that basically says, mind is the source of everything. Our actions follow our mind like an ox cart follows the, the ox, as it were. So one of the key things that gets in people's way, as you know, is fear. Yes. Fear that they won't be able to figure anything out and they're frozen and immobilized. Or another kind of fear that if they actually do figure this Mm. thing out, that will expose them to risks and disappointments and challenges and the possibility of looking bad and other kinds of, we call them dreaded experiences, that they back away from it even before they get started. One of the strengths of your work is it's so practical. I wonder if you could share some practices that people can do themselves to deal with these different kinds of fears. Yes. Well, I think one of the most useful things for me, something I actually learned from my dad very early on, you know, I have a brother that's almost seven years older than me. So that's quite a nice spread. So when I was young, you know, (laughs) my brother had ideas of what he wanted to do and experience. And as a small family, you know, we did things together. One of the things that I learned to love as a young child, and this might sound strange, but scary movies, like zombie movies, like back in the day, George Romero, you know, Dawn of the Dead, all that stuff. I started watching those <laughs> with my family when I was like three. And my dad, geniusly, when I was scared and would pull back, he's like, oh no, this is fun. He would explain to me about the actors and the artistic mm. nature. And when they call cut on a scene, they're probably all laughing. He did the same thing with me with roller coasters, you know, an experience that for many people can invoke a lot of physical fear. You don't feel safe, you pull away, or maybe you get motion sickness. The reason I'm saying this is because one of the things that I realized and I learned early was that fear, not the kind of fear where you could die, not the kind of fear where you're, you know, keeping yourself from walking in front of a a moving bus or stepping on traffic, but Mm. the kind of fear that most of us experience every day, that it could be fun. And that it could be fuel. And then if you leaned into it and moved into it, fear was actually your friend. There was a lot of energy in there that could be utilized to have this richer experience of life. So I think the first thing I'd like to say about this is that many times, especially in the personal development world, we've been taught to like demolish our fear and, you know, annihilate it and smash it and like punch it in the face. And I don't think we have to do that. I think fear is actually our friend, not our foe. And this has come to me later in life. When I've looked at it, honestly, fear really serves as a GPS for where my soul most wants to go. It's guiding me. She's trying to give me a signal. You know, fear is just like a dog or a young baby. She doesn't speak English words. She doesn't have that language, right? Just making sounds or putting out sensations, trying to get our attention. And when I look back over my career, I realize when I start to feel that sense of fear, again, I'm not stepping in front of a moving train. I'm not at any kind of high risk like that. But if I'm putting money on the line, my reputation on the line, my career on the line, and I start to feel those feelings of fear, I now interpret it as this is something important I need to pay attention to because it's probably an opportunity for growth. So that's just a little bit of the contextual reframe. Feeling afraid isn't the problem. Waiting to stop feeling afraid is. We have somehow this mistaken notion that if we could only stop feeling afraid, that means we're really ready to move ahead. And what I've seen is action is actually the antidote to fear. When you start moving into something, that's when it starts to dissipate and you have all of this new space. But let's talk practically because there are some really important considerations like, oh, well, I'm afraid to leave my 
stable job and start this new business, or I'm afraid to leave this relationship. I don't know if I'm going to be okay, or whatever the number of things can do that have real world consequences. There's an exercise we walk through in the book about fear taming 101. And one of the biggest reasons that we don't move through our fear or understand how to mitigate, manage, and move through it is because it remains amorphous in our minds, shapeless, big monsters that we never actually face down and look at. And I've seen one of the most transformative ways to do that is to actually write it on the page. So taking that worst, worst, worst case scenario that you can possibly imagine and actually writing it down. Like what is the worst thing that could happen if you take this step, make that change, take the risk, move in this direction? Then, and here's where it gets good, what would you do if that worst case scenario actually happened? How would you lift yourself back up? How would you rebound? What are all the things that you could do if it actually happened? And then there's another step to this. What is the best case scenarios that could possibly happen from you moving in this direction, taking a risk, making a change, writing all of those down? Just the sheer act of facing your fears on the page takes them from being these big, hairy monsters that can come get you and brings it down to a level of practicality that you begin to say, hey, that's actually not that bad. I could handle that. There's something I can do. Let me give you a practical example. When I was leaving the world of magazine publishing, I was 23 years old. I wanted to start my business. I was terrified. I was tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I don't come from a trust fund family. There was no safety net, no other job, but I knew I wanted to start this business. All the fears, all the considerations, too young. No one's going to take you seriously. You don't know what the hell you're doing. What if you fail? What if you wind up bartending your whole life? The worst of the worst for me was actually failing completely, having no home, having no income, and nowhere to live. Like parents gone, no friends, no one would take me home. And I said, okay, so what would I do? I'd probably go to a shelter. And then you know what I'd do? I would bust my hump to get another job, any job, 15 jobs, and I would somehow climb back up. And I'll tell you, I did fail. I did have to move home with my parents. Partially, like part of my worst case scenarios did actually come true, but they weren't nearly as devastating because I had already thought them through. And then on the flip side, I had gone through all the potential positive outcomes that could happen from taking that risk. And I have to tell you guys, the positive outcomes so far outweighed what would happen if I you know, failed that it gave me all the ammunition I needed to move ahead. And here's the other thing. When you actually articulate your fears on paper and what you would do if things just hit the fan, they're so much less likely to happen. The fact that you've done all this thinking through, you can almost mitigate the problem points in advance. So um, that's what I would suggest for folks in terms of one exercise to really get clear on their fear to know that they can figure anything out. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a great practice. That's really one of the things that stayed with me from reading the book was that specific practice. Um, It was just so actionable and specific. And also it really addressed a kind of core issue that many, many people have with this kind of content, that idea of how can you manage the fears that arise as you're in the process of meeting that leading edge, as you were describing before, which is kind of where all the growth happens. Yeah. So I'd actually like to end here with a question that we also try to ask as many people who come on the show as possible. You described earlier your roots as a child growing up in the situation that you were growing up in. Things were a little tight. You found ways to overcome that. So if you had the opportunity from where you're sitting now to go back and talk to that person as a child or a young adult, 
what would you want to say to them? What would you want to leave them with? Well, I would tell her specifically how incredibly magical she is and that she doesn't have to stress so hard that she could really enjoy the journey because it was all going to work out. And I think you know, looking back over my childhood and my teenage years, my goodness, I was a little, you know, stress pot overachiever. And while that certainly served me and it served its purpose, I think one of the benefits of age and experience is understanding like, oh, it's actually all okay. And the more I have fun and bring that joy to everything, you guys, because I don't know if anyone listening can relate to this, but you know, I have a really strong work ethic and I'm very proud of that. But that has bled over for me into workaholism many, many times where I feel a sense of if I'm not really working so hard that something's going to fall apart. And it's only been in the recent years where I've seen the true power of giving myself downtime. I just actually got back from a um, trip to Italy. Italy is my happy place. And I will tell you the miraculous benefits that I, I came back and things I was working on before I left where they felt so stilted. And I came back and it is like, oh my goodness, such a fresh perspective, so much creativity. So you don't have to go to Italy, of course. You could just like take a weekend off and not be connected to technology. But I think I would tell that young girl and I would tell that teenager to have as much fun as possible and to trust that it is all going to work out and there'll be good times and hard times, but to bring as much joy and full heart to everything as you can. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a really lovely note to end the show on. Marie, again, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. You guys are wonderful. I so also appreciate your work. And Rick, you know this, I told you on the show, but your work has had such an impact on me. So uh, thank you for what you do. And, and thanks for having me on today. Well, thank you. So that's it for today's episode with Marie Forleo. Her new book, Everything is Figureoutable, just went on sale. If you're interested in learning more or purchasing a copy, I'll include a link to the book in the description of today's podcast. You can also catch Marie on Marie TV and the Marie Forleo podcast. I'll also link out to both of those in the description of today's podcast as well. Today, we explored a variety of topics related to Marie's new book, Everything is Figureoutable. We started with Marie's personal story and her mother's indomitable spirit, which is where that phrase came from, before dropping into Marie's response to some natural objections to the phrase, everything is figureoutable. I think that Marie handled those with some real class, offering some great content along the way, specifically that even if facts of life may not be figureoutable, we can always figure out ways to approach those facts of life even if just on the level of holding our own mindset appropriately. She shared some great information on how to access that mindset and get the most value out of it, even if your life is less than rosy right now. And then she offered a great concrete practice for overcoming fear. So if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice. And if you would leave maybe a rating or a positive review, it really does help other people find it. And it's probably the best way to support the podcast directly. So we'll be back again later this week with a short episode from Marie. Until then, thanks for listening.